Welcome to the GigWork podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Wage Indicator Foundation, where we highlight developments, best practices, events, research and more on global issues on the gig economy. My name is Martijn Arets and I am your host today. Working via online platforms is on the rise all over the world. But the debate on the gig economy is mostly focused on the Western world. To get a more complete picture, it is good to take a look at countries with a different institutional landscape. For example, Indonesia. This summer, I traveled through this particular island state for six weeks and ordered taxis and meals dozens of times via Asian platforms Gojek and Grab. These super apps offer numerous services on one single platform, from taxi rides to meal and grocery delivery, from cleaning to financial services. They are wildly popular and you can see this on the streets. In big cities like Jakarta, Surabaya and Yogyakarta, a sea of men in green jackets on motorbikes flood the streets. What does the gig economy mean for Indonesian platform workers? To find out, I spoke to Suki Lestari-Joana, PhD researcher at Utrecht University and working in the Department of International Relations at the Faculty of Social and Political Sciences at Gadja Mada University in Yogyakarta, Indonesia. My name is Suchila Stari Yuana, but you can call me Yuana. I'm a PhD student in Innovation Studies in Utrecht University. And right now, I'm also lecturing in Department of International Relations in Universitas Gajah Mada. And now we are recording this podcast in our campus in Yogyakarta, in Universitas Gajah Mada. And what fascinates you about the gig economy? Well, honestly, I've been interested in gig economy since 2015, of course. I think most of us also are quite interested since the emerging of Uber. And what makes me interesting into researching about gig economy is that at the beginning, gig economy or like Uber bring potential promise of mainstreaming, sharing economy, bring up more collective work to the job market. But then, of course, this sort of innovation become very disruptive. And it does give change into the labor market and job market. And it, it, but it doesn't mean that it is very ideal. It is the best solutions. And there's still a lot of homework to be done in, in the gig economy. So that's why I think I want to join this, you know, f- force to, to somehow navigate and hopefully transforming the gig economy. And you're really focusing on Indonesia. So how would you describe the gig economy in, in Indonesia? What developments did you see the, the last years? Well, I have two points. The first point is the optimistic points first. I think the gig economy in Indonesia has somehow scaled up the informal economy in Indonesia. Our country populated with around uh, 200 million peoples. And right now in 2023, we have more than 200 million people are connected to the mobile internet. And 80% of it are already using digital wallet or digital finance. It means that it has a lot of potentials for, you know, digital, digital economy. And, and another elements of Indonesian economy is that the informal economy is bigger 
than the formal economy in Indonesia, which means in the labor market, we have a lot more informal workers rather than the formal workers. Like, for example, data in 2022, we have more than 80 million informal workers. And what has the gig economy? I mean, we can, we can say gig economy that is facilitated by digital platform, right? Like the Uber or here in Indonesia, we have Grab and we have Gojek. We have Idea for merchants, for example. What positive impact created by this gig economy is that how it scale up the the informal economy and informal workers in Indonesia. Previously, in maybe in the 1990s, people see home cleaners or motorbike taxi riders as a transitional occupation. They don't see it as a serious job. They don't see it as a promising job because it's just like for those who doesn't have a formal job or only have free time, they will go to do home cleaning or they will do taxi, motorbike taxi riders, or we call it here Ojek. But right now, after there is gig economy like Gojek and also like other apps, other big apps, these jobs become more feasible. The informal workers are those who has low educations, like those who didn't graduate high school, for example. They will turn up in informal jobs. But after the gig economy, people with bachelor degree, for example, are joining the informal jobs. So in a sense, we could say that, well, this gig economy make the informal economy more feasible. It become options for people for, for, you know, gaining incomes. And also if we see it from market set, market perspective, it's also creating a very big markets and very big transactions, which is also good for national economy. But on my second point, I go to the more pessimistic side of it. I think many forget that even though gig economy has leveled up the informal economy, but it doesn't mean that it's already inviting all informal workers in Indonesia. In fact, what happened is that there are more exclusions to the informal workers in Indonesia. We people, for example, in taxi industry, we have Gojek. Those who are joining as Gojek riders right now, the motorbike riders, is not the previous motorbike taxi riders, but is the, you know, a fresh grad or those who are lost their job. They joining this, this platform. So it means that for me, I found that the, the, the gig economy in Indonesia has not yet bring inclusive agenda for the informal workers in Indonesia. Well, actually, informal workers that are the major population in Indonesia that we need to, you know, address their issue and also their livelihood. And you say, uh, so it's killed informal markets? Is that a good thing? Because I think in most countries where you say, okay, we're going to scale the informal markets, people are not really happy about it. And second question is also... We say, okay, now also other people join this, this, this market. So people with, with education where also everybody invested in. And they're also maybe taking away work from mm-hmm. precarious workers who, who were, who were already in the, in the informal market. So maybe the gig economy is bad news for precarious workers who were already in this market. So how mm-hmm. do you look to this? Right. On the first question, is informal market a good thing? I think. It, it, the question should go beyond good or not because 
this is the reality in Indonesia. The informal economy is the backbone of our national economy. I mean, like if the if the government did not succeed providing jobs, like formal jobs for the population, then the informal economy become the pots for them that host these people who cannot get job in the formal economy. Uh, I think this this reality is not only seen in Indonesia, but is is also shared by countries from the global south, uh, where uh, many people are working in the informal uh, informal economy, and some. I think many of them see it as something that they can do until the end of their life. Like, you know, this is, this is their goal. What I want to say is that, well, that, that, that sort of, you know, ranking <laughs> unfairly going on with the, in, in, in the way we value jobs, like formal jobs always more secure than informal job. But in reality, in Indonesia, for example, people live from informal economy. Our daily activity, I actually supported by this informal economy. And on your second questions, yeah, I, I, that is something I see, I personally see as unfortunate. I mean, I think how this could happen, the way I, and the way I observe it, why people who already graduate from bachelor degree go to the informal job, like they become motorbike taxi riders, they, they, rather than they apply for a job in, in their sectors based on their discipline. First of all, I would say there is a misleading marketing happening in Indonesia. I think it also happens in other countries, like how the platform portray themselves, how the platform trying to invite the workers. Usually what happens when there is a new startup in the gig economy, whether it's a taxi industries or in a home cleaning or other industries, they will promote themselves that they will give a high payment or a high salary to the workers. Even Indonesia, for example, in 2015, when Gojek was trying to introduce their application and invited drivers, they say that we can give you salary 10 million rupiah, or it's around maybe 700 euros. And it was already four times than the minimum salary in, 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 in the city, in Jakarta city, for example. So this, this sort of marketing is not only creating invitation for the precarious workers, but it's also creating for the fresh bread. Even for those who already have formal job, they will, okay, they will start to, maybe I can start doing this part time, but then they will get all of this salary and they decided to swift into the full time jobs. So I think that's the first issue. And it's still going on right now. Like, for example, Air Asia, they just launched their online taxi business. And the way they market their platform, they say that, well, we give you high salary with, with, how to say, with protections, insurance, etc. And of course, those who are applying, not the, the conventional taxi drivers, it's like all the fresh grab and everything. So I think that's, <laughs> well, among, of course, there is other factors as well, but one problem I found so far, one big puzzle we need to shift is the misleading strategies on the platform. And what are the discussions that are going on in Indonesia about the gig economy? My research is focused on contestation and conflict about the economy in Indonesia. And of course, the major issue is about the classification, the regulations on the platform, and right now more into tariff. 
One interesting observations I found that in, in many countries in the global south, including Indonesia, they tend to focus more on the short term gain rather than the long term gains. So when I talk to workers organization, for example, what they are trying to achieve, we have sort of worker organization of gig economy here in Indonesia. But what they want to fight for is like a short term gain, like, for example, they want to you know advocate a better fare or better price in their in their job but they don't have a very you know long term view about what what sort of regulation what sort of law how they how could they can change the law that will you know protect themselves that will also increasing you know their decent working conditions so i think that that's 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 what i i observe right now most of most of the debate even from the governments <laughs> even from the government i have interviewed with some of the government side they are more focused on the short terms period what sort of policy that could solve the problem only in the short time like one one year or less than one year periods but i think we we need more like long term debate right now which is not happening in indonesia long term visions about okay how do we want to imagine the future of this gig economy and do you think this also comes because people see it as a informal markets so then you also they only need to have have intervention for short term and not for long term That's interesting because even though the fact here that informal economy is the backbone of our economy, but in many discussions, informal economy always considered as transitional job. Even in the motorbike taxi, I already like I have some interview with people from the Ministry of Transportation. I was like asking because the motorbike taxi in Indonesia is not legal, but it is legitimate. That you can see it everywhere, even though it's not legal, right? So it means it's part of the informal economy. And it's already been exist since 1970s. And I asked that the government, why don't you legalize it or, you know, try to make a legal regulations about it? And their answer is that, well, we never imagine motorbike as a formal transport or legal transport because from safety side it is not safe for a motorbike as a public transport but because they are access so we only see it well okay let just let let this motorbike taxi access until we have a proper public transport <laughs> we have you know proper MRT train and etc and then the customer will shift to more, you know, public transport. But until right now, motorbike taxi is still exist. So I think it will be very difficult, very challenging to regulate informal economy. I think we need to find a more a mechanism how to make people who are working in the informal economy has a more, you know, mobility. So like right now, the problem is People who has a bachelor degree, they can work in the informal economy, but they also can apply for formal job. But those who don't graduate from high school, for example, they cannot apply for formal job. I think there is a problem of vertical mobility there. And that is something we, we need to think about. How do we make the conditions of people in the informal economy more decent, have better fare, even though they stay as an informal economy? <laughs> 
And but is it also also not in the end just a government still ignoring the facts? And which is, I think, from a outsider perspective, of course, with all respect, quite strange, or interesting. Mm-hmm. Because if you look here outside, in, uh, we're now here in Jakarta. Uh, mm-hmm. I've also been in, in different cities here in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. They're visible, the workers. Mm-hmm. And before, uh, what you say is, in uh, 70 years ago, they were maybe less visible, but now they're visible because they're all wearing a green jacket with go jack or grab. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, in what way do you think you can, or, or government needs to take responsibility in this and step over a kind of a frame they already have for years about, okay, the informal economy is just a in-between job and maybe also echoing also maybe the, the, the stories about the platforms, which also say, okay, this, this is all about additional income. But when you get the numbers for most drivers, especially taxi, it's not, it's not additional. It's just their, their main income. So how do you think you can also change the vision of the government in this and also yeah force them to take the responsibility of look at the reality instead of yeah diving away for the truth well yes i'm not really sure because the question is how do we change the visions of the governments i think i felt that i don't have that power to really change the mindset of the government but then what we are doing right now in the institution in our department for example of course we are using multiple streams of you know connecting with the government whether it's doing collaborations cooperations or even we are conducting seminars and we are not afraid of saying criticism which we thought that, well, this need to be changed in the governments. But I think one issues right now that I don't have, I haven't found being implemented yet in Indonesia is that how government could give more forum for debates between platforms and their workers. Because at the moment, I only have one example when there is a, the Ministry of Transportation trying to enact regulations for motorbike taxi drivers. I think that was the first moment where the Ministry of Transportation in, really invited the workers to join in in drafting the regulations. And I think that's how I found so far bring more change into the regulations because traditionally they only invite platforms company and some expert from transportation expert from the academics but they never invite the workers in drafting the regulations workers always invited for socializations you know <laughs> after the decision is finished or done then they will involve the workers for a picture in the end <laughs> that's true so they would say this is participatory <laughs> so i would like to bring more participatory agenda in acting regulation in debating the issues and and really bring up multiple perspectives and I think bring up more voices, perspective from the workers itself. Yeah, I think it's a good thing because in most discussions, people are really talking a lot about the worker. Right. But, but they forget to talk with the worker. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that we need to bring up more. Even even for me, I, I don't feel I am, you know, eligible enough to talk about the workers here. I'm just trying to speak on what I observe. 
And can you also share, share some more details about your research and also the way how you also interact with, with gig workers? Right. Well, my research, uh, as I mentioned before, is about conflict and contestations about gig economy. So I was trying to have interview with as many people as possible from different perspectives, from the governments, also from the platform and from the gig workers. So I was lucky in 2018, I have this opportunity to have a direct observation on the drafting regulation moment, the one that I mentioned to you before. So yeah, I was lucky I find somebody who can help me to be in the room and really see how's the debate going on. And I wrote a paper about that, discussing the dramaturgy of the debate in the room. It's, it's really interesting to see the, you know, the power relation between the platform company and their workers. And then after that moment in 2018, I, you know, keep up, keep contact with the workers organizations. And interestingly, they, they have a chance to gather in Oxford, actually in 2019 or 20, if I'm not mistaken, it was the first gathering for I think the name is International Alliance for Platform Workers or something. And at that time, uh, it gives me more perspective. I was uh, invited to join that workshop and see how geek workers from around the world discussing about, you know, building up international alliance and what do they debating about. That's a very rich perspective for me because I can see, okay, even among workers, there's still contestation. There's so many conflicts going on because they have a different perspective. And then it's very, very interesting. And then after that, on, on 2020, I think it's in the beginning of pandemic, I think 2020, 2021, start having more deep conversation with the gig worker. I was asking about their visions about the future of gig economy and. Of course, I also talked with the government and the platform company about the future of gig economy. So I was, I was trying to, to see to what extent the gig worker have, you know, imagination about their future, at least for themselves. And one interesting finding I found in that research is that if we look, if we ask a question, what do you think the future of gig economy or what, what kind of future that you desire to happen in the gig economy? So, I, I categorize there are around 37 criteria that they want for the gig economy. And only, I think from those 37, I think only like five criteria are technical criteria. Most of the criteria are social criteria that they want to have, you know, better salary. They want to have better protections in the working or from the economic side. And most, most of the criteria is from the regulations. So I think that somehow that research brought me to, to the point that it, it's, it's, it's very important to, to have, you know, more participatory methods in our research to listen more to the gig worker. But it doesn't mean that we only listen to the gig workers and only, you know, blindly defending to the one side of the stories. But it also helped me to also listen to the governments and the platform company itself. So that's a bit or a long story from my research. <laughs> and can we go back to, to, to the moment where you had the, where you attended the, the, the discussion in the room? Mm-hmm. All stakeholders were together. So what were your main observations there as a kind of a outsider that could observe what's, what's going on there? 
Talking about power, yeah. Talking about how gig workers can bring up change or can can bring change. First of all, in the room, I observe that when worker organization is invited, they will come with many people, like. 10 peoples, 20 peoples, and usually a representative from the companies, like only one or two peoples. And the rest is like people from the government's officials, etc. But I found that why, why this give work, why this work organization came with so many of them? Because I think the power lies on their collectivity, you know, because if they only stand alone and they arguing, they giving their personal perspective i observe that it won't be considered you know serious enough or they won't listen too much unless they came together you know like they came in 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 a collective way so that's first that i found that power for the geek workers lies when they are you know union unionized and came together collectively and second of all i found that well in that room another interesting point that I observe there is also powers rely on where do you sit in the room. <laughs> it, it is maybe odd, but I think that's interesting observation I found that because usually the room is not like a meeting room, so it's not really big. So it will be divided into first row, circle, and then second row. So it's it, 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 we can clearly see those who are sitting in the first row are actually the most powerful, which means that those who will decide it, you know, the, the, the end of these regulations. What I found interesting is that the drivers also divided into this row. So those who are sitting in the first row are actually like so-called leaders of the organization and they tend to have more voice rather than those who are sitting on the second row. And yeah, I, I think there are many, many observations I found in the room. Maybe one, one more. Interesting observations I found in the room is that for government sites. So how do they navigate this debate? Because if you, if we bring up an agenda, we want to enact a regulations, but we, we, you know, we face different people with a very heated contestation. How do they navigate the, the end of this regulation? I found that it's very important to have sort of a draft that the government prepare at the beginning. So then the discussion is only limited to the draft itself. So I know it's, it's between good or bad in a good side, then it makes the, the meeting very efficient because on to into that days of meeting, they can only focus on drafting the regulation. So they're only debating on what is written in the regulation. But of course, on the bad side is what is not written in the draft will not, will have no space to be discussed. So yeah, that's sort of three points I found so far. When you talked about the 37 criteria and discussed also with the workers, say, okay, there are some criteria also in, in, in regulation. So what were more, a, a bit more concrete, the, the, the criteria, uh, the criteria and yep. also the, the wishes from the workers? Okay. So first on the criteria. So there are uh, around 37 criteria and I categorize it into 
four sector. The first one is economy sector, and then second one is government regulations, and then social and technology. Like in the technology, for example, some of the criteria is digital infrastructure criteria. So they want to have a, a better, like a more equal digital infrastructure. Like Indonesia is really wide. Some, some of our province doesn't even have internet yet. So they want to have more digital infrastructures and also more on digital talents. The aspiration is they want to have more people who can work in the digital economy and for social, for example. I think social and government regulation are the criteria that is most come from the workers. So from social, here health and pension insurance, that is one of most frequent discussion of criteria among the workers and also on the um, driver organizations. So they, the criteria about imagining the future is how can they organize themselves to be more collective and unionized to somehow build a driver organizations. And then from government regulations, there are many discussions, interestingly, about legal protections. So many workers felt that they are not legally protected by the companies and they want to have sort of law that, you know, somehow allows them to sue the company if they the company didn't protect them. And then another f- most frequent discussion is on consumer protections. So because when they become the workers, they are mostly interacted with the consumers. So in the sense, the, the workers also think about the consumers, then they, they also want to have more consumer protections. So we're now in Indonesia. You were mm-hmm. looking at the Indonesian gig economy, but you also did your research while you were living in Utrecht, in Netherlands, uh, as part of the university in Utrecht. Mm-hmm. Did you also see in the, in those different, different worlds kind of assumptions about the gig economy? So how Dutch people look to the economy in Indonesia and didn't understand and vice versa? And mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I just <laughs> experienced it recently, actually on my paper review process. I think I got some reviewer from European university or American university. I was discussing about informal economy and I think most common assumption I got from European counterpart is that how when there is an informal economy, the only solution is to formalize it, <laughs> right? Because I think that this, this is something also I observe when I live in the Netherlands. There is not many informal economy feasible in the cities or in the public space. Like everything is very formal, very organized and planned. So when they see something informal, unorganized, illegal for example not legal for example and then it become then the solution is like only linear okay from informal to formal from illegal to legal i think that's that's something i found that maybe that's not the case here in indonesia of course we could advocate to formalize all the informal job or trying to legalize all the informal economy but i'm not sure whether that will answer or that will solve what is happening in Indonesia because 
right now, as I mentioned early in our podcast, informal economy is like the backbone. So when we are legalizing, like we, we somehow, you know, taking out all this backbone of the economy and yeah, <laughs> I'm not really sure what will be the alternative, but that is some difference I found. And I really want to say that, well, not all informal jobs should be formal or not all informal economy should be like formal economy. I think that also gets quite some appreciation for the informal economy. Right. Where maybe in Europe and US you see informal as a bad thing. Mm-hmm. That was also in my question. Okay, so what is good in a growing informal economy? Mm-hmm. Well, if you really say, okay, but we also appreciate it also as a backbone of our economy. And we know it's not perfect, maybe far from perfect, but there are also ways we can change without formalizing it. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, a, it's also okay. Yeah. Maybe, even though we don't, I don't have any like definitive what would be right there. I think, I think the most obvious way we could say that, well, we need to involve them. <laughs> we need to involve the informal worker. When there is a startup want to create a platform that they will work in the informal economy, first of all, they need to hire the informal or the precarious workers first, rather than, you know, advertising the big salary and inviting those who already have job in the formal economy to joining. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> okay, also share something about your future research. So what are the topics that you're going to look at in the coming years? Yes. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm really, you know, I felt that very invested in my, you know, interactions with people that I work with during my research, whether it's just the government or the platform company or even the workers itself. And the way I see it, I hope my upcoming research is still, you know, working on this topic on gig economy. But especially, I think for the last five years, I already somehow fed up with the dominant business model with capitalistic idea of gig economy or a bit of fed up with how there is a hierarchy relationship between the platform and the workers. For future research, I will try to look more on the alternative for this gig economy, looking more democratic side of this gig economy or looking for more sustainable side of this gig economy. I learned a lot from Joanna and my six-week trips through Indonesia. As in other countries, gig platforms in Indonesia present themselves as new and different while they're merely facilitating existing work through a digital platform. The name Gojek is even derived from the existing word Ojek, meaning motorbike taxi. It is remarkable that policymakers fall for this so easily. That gig platforms are popular in countries like Indonesia is quite logical. After all, personal services such as motorbike taxis are already commonplace here. In addition, there is high unemployment. So more and more skilled and educated people are also offering their services via platforms. In short, there's lack of perspective. This is a topic that, in my opinion, is too often missing in discussions about the gig economy. Thanks to the conversation with Joanna, I look at developments in the platform economy with different eyes. The way southern countries see the informal economy is particularly interesting. In a large informal market, workers may be more resilient to the gig economy because they are already used to organize informally. This is confirmed by the members of the wage indicator team I talked to in Jakarta. They told me that food delivery workers keep a close in touch via WhatsApp groups. 
If something is wrong with someone, there's a swarm of green jackets around them in no time. Well, I feel delivery workers are stronger because of that solidarity. It is difficult to stand up to the big platforms. Apps in Indonesia are increasingly becoming super apps with different services. For instance, you could not only book a taxi, but also have groceries delivered, see a doctor, send packages and hire a handyman. Easy for customers, but it also means that workers are becoming increasingly dependent on these apps. Indeed, it becomes harder to build your own customer base apart from the app. This is another argument for more government regulation. In this respect, Indonesia has quite a few steps to take. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Also check our weekly newsletter and online webinars on the global gig economy. You will find the links in the show notes.